0: As I've already mentioned, this morning is the uh, conclusion of this series that we're in, in the book of Esther. And I I sincerely pray and hope that it's been an encouragement to you as you've studied, as we've studied together. But we've also uh, learned a lot together, both individually and and collectively. Uh, We've learned about the providential grace of God, how He redeems situations that seem dark and, and difficult for His good intended purposes in our life and for His glory. Uh, Now, we don't have time to kind of go over and and to finish all the, like, read up all the rest of the stuff. So I'm going to kind of give us a a bit of an overview of where we've been and what we see at the ending of the the book here. When we began the story, we saw in in Esther chapter 1, we see and we're introduced to King Xerxes, who's kind of an egotistical king, completely full of himself. He has this large party where he's parading around all of his wealth and power and prestige and everything that he has. And he's kind of putting it on display for everybody else. And we find out in that first chapter that it's no small thing to cross the king. It's no small thing to kind of go against the king. When he calls his wife Vashti at the time, he calls her to kind of be objectified and parade him in front of all of his drunken friends. She refuses. She refuses to be objectified in that manner. And because of her refusal, she just gets banished. She just gets wiped away by King Xerxes. And so we find out that this egotistical king was no small thing to cross him. It's no small thing to kind of go against him. Well, then in Esther chapter 2, we're introduced to Esther, who's a young orphaned widow or young orphaned Hebrew girl who's being raised by her older cousin Mordecai. And she, through a difficult situation in her own life, her family has passed away. And so now she's being uh, raised by her older her older cousin Mordecai and through another tragic means she's ripped out of that family and brought to the city of Susa to serve the king in his harem for the rest of her life that she would just simply serve there whatever his beck and call she would just come and do that. But well, we discovered as she was brought to the the, to the palace that day, that not only her outer beauty, but there was something about her inner character that she finds favor with the king and with those around. And she's crowned the next queen of Persia. So this orphaned Hebrew girl who has not a lot going for her, though her, she's outerly beautiful, she gets ripped out of their family, brought to the palace, and she's crowned the next Queen of Persia. Again, we see the redemptive providence of God at work behind the scenes through tragic situations to bring about his good intended purposes for those called according to his will. But then we're introduced to the antagonist of the story, the evil Haman, and his grudge and his anger against the Israelite people. And because of his anger, because of his grudge, he puts together a plan to, to completely kill and annihilate all of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. When Mordecai hears about that, he goes over to Esther, who's now queen at the time, pleads with her to go before the king and to risk her own life to save the people of Israel, to save the Israelites. And he famously tells her, you may remember this, he says, perhaps you've been put in this place for such a time as this. Perhaps God's redemptive providence to bring you out from where you were, to place you into the palace where you are when you're there is for such a time as this, for his kingdom purpose. And though it's risking her very life, she agrees. She calls the whole community to a community-wide fast and prayer for three days. And at the end of those three days, she comes into the king's palace, risking her own life to save others. And what we find is in this great divine reversal, as we see that when Esther comes and tells King Xerxes about this plot to, to kill all the Israelites, Haman's plan to kill all the Israelites, it's not Mordecai and it's not the Israelites who are executed and killed, but it's Haman. In the divine reversal, it's not Mordecai or the Israelites, it's Haman that is executed on the very pole that he had built up for Mordecai. And again, you see the redemptive providence of God at work behind the scenes, even in horrific and tragic situations to bring about good, to bring about good. And that's where we ended the story last week. But there's more to it. There's chapter 8, 9, and 10. And we don't have time to read all three of those chapters. We're not going to do that. I trust you've read them because I've asked you to multiple times. But we're going to just, maybe allow me just to kind of cover over uh, briefly what happens in 8, 9, and 10. And I want to, as we do that, highlight just two things that I want us to remember as we leave the book of Esther. Okay. Yeah, Esther chapters 8, 9, and 10, and then two things to how do we live our ordinary lives in the kingdom of God as we leave the book of Esther. And in chapter 7, Haman is executed and, and he's done away with, and yet the law, the edict that he had put in place was still there. It was not gone away. So in some months' time, the Israelite people are going to face annihilation. There are people who have been deputized all around are going to come over and they're going to kill and annihilate all of the Israelite people. And so Esther and Mordecai come up with a plan. They plead again to King Xerxes for a, a, for a way out. And Xerxes them, allows them to write a new law. And the new law is to allow the Israelite people to defend themselves against those that are going to come against them to allow them to defend themselves against those uh, family of Haman and those that are arming themselves to come against the Israelites. So when the day comes, the day that Haman had originally planned to annihilate all the Israelite people, the Israelites are able to defend themselves. And because they're able to defend themselves, they win the battle. And they kill all Haman's family, their, their sons, and all that were coming against the Israelites. The Israelites are able to win that battle. And they are saved. And they are saved. And Esther and Mordecai, they still live in Persia and they're able to care for and serve and protect the Israelite people and they're able to watch over them. Again, we see the redemptive providence of God to bring about good purposes in the lives of those called according to his purpose. We see the hand of God at work behind the scenes. Horrific tragedies are happening all throughout the book of Esther. And the people of Israel are even on the verge of dying. They're on the verge of being annihilated and wiped out. And yet God makes a way for them to be saved. He, he makes a way where it doesn't seem like there could be anything else. They're on the verge of being completely wiped away. And yet God makes a way for them to be saved. And they set up this festival and they, they continue to remember that for years and even still today today. Some Jewish people, some Jewish parts of Jewish families will remember this story and they retell the story. And that's what we see in Esther 8, 9, and 10. So as we've done over these last few weeks, let me suggest a couple things. And today I'm just going to suggest two things that will help us to be kingdom people in our everyday lives as we leave this book and as we continue on our way. Just two things for us to consider this morning. And the first one is that the kingdom way of non-vengeance. There's a kingdom principle, a kingdom way of non-vengeance. Now I know I said I wasn't going to read the rest of the story, but I do want you to draw your attention to a couple of, a couple of verses in Esther chapter 9. Because there are three verses that repeat the exact same phrase three times in Esther chapter 9. And whenever the Scriptures repeat themselves, the ought to perk up our ears to pay attention. Why is the writer repeating themselves a couple times? Three times repeated the exact same phrase in Esther chapter 9. The Israelites, we're told, are able to, through this new law, to defend themselves against those who hated them, those who are taking up arms and fighting them. They're able to defend themselves. But in Esther chapter 9, verse 10, it says they did not lay their hands on the plunder. They're able to defend themselves. They're able to take care of themselves. But they don't lay their hands on the plunder, on the property of those that are coming against them. The law said they could. The law said they could defend themselves, and anybody that they defended and they killed, they would take their property. But in verse 10, it says they did not lay their hands on their plunder. And then they killed the sons of Haman and others in the city of Susa. But in Esther chapter 9, verse 15, it says they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And then all throughout the provinces of Persia, all throughout King Xerxes, his reign, all where they are, wherever the Jewish people protected themselves, in verse 16 of Esther chapter 9, it says, they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Three times, the author repeats, three times that they did not lay their hands on the plunder. They didn't take for themselves the property of those who were coming against them, those who were coming to annihilate them, those who were coming to, to fight them. They did not take the plunder, they did not take the things That they even, the law said they could have taken, but they didn't take them. So why do I bring all that up? Why do I point us to the fact that in Esther chapter 9, three times it's repeated? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. The first, and this is the the teacher part of me, I really hope you remember the history lesson I told you a couple weeks ago. I really hope you remember that. And if you don't remember it, go back and listen to that sermon a couple weeks ago. Because one of the reasons why King Saul fell from kingship is his battle against Agag. And we remember that Haman was an Agagite from the the line of Agag. And in that battle, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find that Saul was told to annihilate the Amalekites and to not do anything with their stuff. But Saul saw some of the plunder and and he took it for himself. Saw some of the cattle and the plunder in the land and took it For himself, the greediness and vengeance and just say, I'm going to take it for me. Well, the Israelites aren't going to make the same mistake twice. And they don't do it this time. They don't do it this time. But another reason is they also remember the kingdom principle or they begin to understand the kingdom principle that vengeance belongs to God. That vengeance belongs to God. While it may be appropriate and good at times to defend ourselves, to defend myself, we don't need to take revenge and be spiteful in our response. And there's a difference there. And that principle of non-vengeance is fleshed out in the Newer Testament in Jesus' teaching and the Newer Testament teaching of the Apostles. And just for one sake, if you're a note-taker, you might want to write this down, but in in Romans chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, Romans 12, verses 18 through 21, this principle of non-vengeance is fleshed out in the New Testament here by the Apostle Paul, and it says this. Actually, I'll give it back to verse 17. Romans 12, verse 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. The kingdom principle here is one of non-vengeance. The kingdom principle here is to not act as judge and jury over those who we have been offended by, to not just kind of wipe them out or, or to be vengeful or spiteful or kind of go after them at whatever means necessary. The first principle that we see in, in Esther chapter 8, 9, and 10 that we can take with us. But there's a second thing I want us to point out and to consider, and that is the importance of remembrance. We're told in, in this, these three chapters that the Israelite people established a feast. The feast is called Purim. It comes from the word pur, P-U-R, which was the dice, which is why Pastor Jake was talking about the dice today. It was the dice or the lot that, that Haman had cast to find out when the Israelite people were going to be annihilated. And so they had set up this festival, they set up this feast to remember that day, and it's called the Feast of Purim. And the Israelites set this up to remember the day that they were saved. To remember the day when everything looked dark and bleak and black, and yet God made a way for them to be saved. And so for generations to come, they would retell the story of the day in which they were saved. The day in which God, in his redemptive providence, stepped into tragedy and horrific situations and made a way for them to be redeemed and rescued and saved. Saved remembering is a key part of living in the kingdom of God. Remembering what God has done for us individually and what he has done for us collectively is a kingdom principle and a key part of living in the kingdom of God. To remember the day that we were saved. This is what we just did. To glance back on our life and to see ways in which God's redemptive providence has stepped in, in line with us to redeem. Where things that looked all dark and bleak and God made a way for salvation. And as Christ-following people, as apprentices to Jesus, then we, lear, we need to learn to joyously tell the story of the day in which Christ came to save us. That while we were dead in our sins, we had a death death sentence. God was orchestrating something in the background. God was orchestrating something behind the scenes to provide the ultimate divine reversal where Christ would tie in our place, where Christ would take upon himself our sin and make a way for us to be saved. God was stirring in our hearts and in our lives in such a way where we make it a place where we can come to know him So part of the crucial aspect of living in the kingdom is to retell the story. So this morning we've come to do just that. We do that at the Lord's table. What we call communion or the Eucharist, for the Greek word to mean to give thanks. We give thanks to what God has done and we retell the story of the wondrous act of how he has saved us how he has reached into the tragedy of our lives and he has brought us out for his good intended purposes. In this meal that we share in just a moment, we remember the way that death was defeated, where the grave could not contain him and where he makes possible eternal life for those who will call on him. In this meal, we retell the story for generations to come the way in which God in his redemptive providence has reached into our life and has saved us. And has saved us. So we are a people of non-vengeance people and we are a people who retell the story of God's wondrous act of grace. Wondrous grace. We practice open communion at Crossroads, which means if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come. And for those who are gathered online, we hope that you would have communion elements there with you, some bread and some juice that you can share in this meal with us, even though you're on the online campus. In a moment, for you in here in the in-person campus, you'll be dismissed from the backs of your sections. You'll come forward. There'll be four people up here, and we've got little small cups, and they have the bread, the wafer, and the juice together in the cup. What we're going to ask you to do is to come forward, grab the cup, and go back to your seats and to sit, and we will take the meal together. We'll take the wafer together and we'll take the cup together and we will remember and retell the story of the wondrous act of grace where God stepped into our life and made a way where there was a death sentence. He took upon himself that penalty that we may live eternally with him. Friends, we are a telling people, a story people, and this table tells the greatest story ever told. The Apostle Paul tells us that we ought to examine ourselves before coming to the table. And this is not an examination to see if you're worthy of this table because this table is a table for sinners, people who need a Savior. So this table is not for the perfect. This table is for the broken. But the examination is to remember the work of Christ on our behalf, to remember the sacredness of what we are doing, and to remember the day that He saved you. He stepped into your life and drew you to him that you would know him. So I'll give you a moment of just silent, quiet reflection, and then we'll have a, the corporate confession that we've been using through the ser- series on the screen, and then we'll lead you through the communion liturgy. And we go from there. So just have a moment, just a quiet reflection.